Well, good morning again. It's great to see you. Thanks for being with us. Uh, if you're here in the room or you're watching online, you're listening uh, or watching later, thanks for taking time out of your week to worship with us. My name is Corey, if we haven't met, and I have the honor and privilege of being lead pastor here at GFC. And you have joined us, if this is your first time, uh, in the midst of our series on the book of Judges. And we've been diving into Judges. We've spent two weeks already, so this is week three. And this is a difficult book. To know what to do with, right? Like it's one of those books that if you actually go, and we said this at the beginning, we didn't get there yet, we're going to get there today. There's some stories in Judges that would kind of make R-rated movies, right? If you just made it into a movie, that would be the rating that would be on it. And so we're going to get into some of that story today, and we're going to get into some of the things that we're going to keep going through this series for the next couple of weeks. But I do want to take a time out uh, this morning to talk to you about the holidays, okay? So who, does anyone start decorating for Christmas yet? Anybody? 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 I thought maybe there'd be like one or two. So we're going to start to think about that. I wanted to give you guys a lot of heads up to start thinking about the holidays because this, this Christmas and this New Year's, things get a little dicey in church world because you know why? Because Christmas is on a Sunday and New Year's is on a Sunday. So here's what happens when that happens, right? We as a church, uh, you know, myself, the elders, Pastor Andrew, we can decide to do things as normal, and then you have to play the game in your head of what do we do, how do we change, do we still do the same stuff, and if I choose to do my family thing, does that mean I'm less of a Christian because I'm not going to church on Sunday, right? Now you have to play that game. I don't want you to play that game, and to be honest, I don't want to play that game, okay? So this year, I want to make sure everybody knows how we're going to switch things up and do things a little bit differently this year to hopefully reach, uh, reach people and to create a space where we can engage at Christmas really well and also do the things that are important to our families and our traditions uh, because those things are important too. So first things first, uh, we are going to do Christmas at the warehouse again. And so if you weren't a part of that last year, it was an awesome time for us to go into the community. The warehouse is a wedding venue, an event venue that is three minutes down the street. So you don't have to go very far, change your, you know, change up your plans too much. Um, we're going to be there again on Christmas Eve, and we're going to be there. We're, we're going to have the uh, worship experience at one o'clock. Okay, one o'clock on Christmas Eve, which is a Saturday. Now you might go, Pastor Corey, why are we at one o'clock? Sometimes I'm used to doing Christmas Eve services or uh, candlelight services in the dark and like things like that. Well, here's multiple reasons why we're at one o'clock. First of all, it's Saturday. So we wanted to be a little earlier in the day anyway, because I know, you know, Christmas Eve dinners, things like that. Maybe even open presents on Christmas Eve, all of that stuff. We didn't want to get into that. Middle of the afternoon is usually kind of the sweet spot for Christmas Eve services anyway. But we have another thing we're running into culturally, and that is the Eagles and Cowboys play at 4.30. And so, here's the thing. Now, you're going to look at me and just think, oh, Pastor Corey just wants to watch Eagles game. I do, but here's the other thing. We want to pick a spot on that day that is the, has the least resistance culturally so people can come and experience it as many people as possible. Okay, so when we land at one o'clock, we go, hey, we're going to be in at one o'clock. We're going to be done two, two thirty. You can get to wherever you need to go to watch the game or get dinner ready or get to the restaurant or whatever you're going to do on Christmas Eve. Okay, so Christmas Eve, one o'clock on Saturday, December 24th. That's Christmas at the warehouse. Okay, so please mark your calendars. Be ready for that. We will be looking for more, a few more volunteers. We had a team that met last week to kind of start to plan that. Um, it really is a desire for us to go into the community and to be a different space than just inviting people to church. So you can start thinking about who would be neighbors, maybe coworkers, classmates. Who would you invite that will that would be more likely to come to something that's a little bit more of a Christmas Eve 
feel that's not just at church. Uh, we're going to have gifts for the kids. There's going to be hot chocolate and cookies again, all of that fun stuff. It's going to be a great opportunity. We're going to have a photo booth, all of that stuff again. So start to think about that. So then fast forward a week. Well, what do we do with New Year's? Here's what we've decided to try this year. We're going to do a New Year's Eve worship night. And so on Saturday, December 31st at 5.30, we're going to get together right here, and we're going to do a lot of singing, and we're going to do some testimony time. We're going to have specific people we ask to be a part of that, to share about the year. We're going to celebrate the year. We're going to look forward to 2023, and it's going to be a little bit different. It's not going to be me. It's not going to be Pastor Andrew, but we're going to spend that night worshiping together, celebrating what God has done, and then looking forward to what he's going to do. And for the kids, we're going to have some fun because we're going to have a Grace Kids countdown party. And so downstairs, we're going to go, we're going to have all the fun, we're going to get all the hats, we're going to get the glasses, we're going to do all the kind of fun stuff Pastor Andrew is working on so that they can celebrate the new year. Um, and so we did that 530, so hopefully if you get to, you know, you want to get to a party or something to celebrate New Year's, you can do that. Um, but we wanted to spend some intentional time that night, and so that if you are the kind of person that lets your kids stay up till midnight like we do, then we don't have to turn around to right the next morning and be ready to go and asking people to serve and, and all that kind of stuff. So here's why we say all this, right? This is different. It is. We could keep the same schedule, and we could just say, we're going to be here Christmas morning, we're going to be here New Year's morning, we're just going to keep it exactly the same, and hope that that fits your schedule and show up. But here's what we want to do. We, we want to be committed to the gospel, but guess what? Everything else is kind of an experiment. And so we're going to do something different. And we're going to get through, we're going to go through this. We did Christmas at the warehouse last year, and that was awesome, so we kind of feel good about that. We're, going to, we're changing to New Year's Eve. We don't know how that's going to go. We're going to try it. But I would encourage you, those are our worship experiences for those times. So I'm giving you two months ahead of time, right, to say, hey, plan how, help yourself plan that out, right? Let's, let's try and be here. Let's worship together. And let's invite people that maybe don't engage on a regular basis. Or if you invite someone to church on a Sunday morning, New Year's Day, that doesn't normally go to church, it's probably not happening, right? But maybe this is a little different schedule, and maybe you have kids or you know friends of your kids that would want to come to a countdown party on New Year's Eve, and so we want to have fun in that way. So we're going to try it. And so I would just encourage you to get your schedules ready, to understand that's where we're at. So we're talking again, just to recap, Christmas at the Warehouse is at 1 o'clock on Christmas Eve, and then New Year's Eve worship and the kids' countdown party will be at 5.30 on December 31st. I know that this is going to get crazy. We have a few other things we have to figure out at the end of the year, like budget stuff and partnership and all that kind of stuff. So just be paying attention to that. The best way to stay connected, and this is an opportunity, if you don't get this already, use that Next Steps card that's in the seat back in front of you or to do it online. If you don't get our weekly email that comes out every Thursday right around lunchtime, if that's not normally in your inbox, please sign up for that. Because what that does is it helps you stay in the loop. That's the one thing we send out. We don't blast you guys with a bunch of stuff. You'll get one a week from us that just says, here's what's coming up. Here's what you need to sign up for. Here's what you need to have on your schedule. And that'll really help you stay connected, okay? So if you don't have that, we would encourage you to sign up again. You can do that on the Next Steps card, whether you do that online or you use it in the seat back in front of you. You can drop it in the boxes or take it to the desk in the lobby, all right? Cool. Good Christmas talk. Let's dive into Judges, all right? So we're in Judges chapter 3. And today we're going to go through verses 7 through 30, okay? So like I said, we're, we're getting into this. We've had two weeks of this already. Pastor Andrew started us off a couple weeks ago, and then our friend Phil was here last week, and they dug into this, and we kind of got the stage set. 
And so we've got the nation of Israel, and they, they are kind of in a cycle, and we're going to see that here at the very beginning. So if you want to follow along, you can, watch, you can follow along on the screens. You can also use the QR code on the back of the Next Steps card. If you scan that, it'll take you to our follow-along page, which will have all the notes and all the verses there for you as well. So in Judges chapter 3, starting in verse 7, this is what it says. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot about the Lord their God. And they served the images of Baal and the Asherah poles. Keep going. Verse 8. Then the Lord burned with anger against Israel. And he turned them over to King, I can't say his name, so I'm going to call him Sear. Sear of Aram. And the Israelites served Sear for eight years. Verse 9. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Othniel, the son of Caleb's younger brother, Kenaz. Verses 10, 11, the spirit of the Lord came upon him and he became Israel's judge and he went to war against King Sear of Aram and the Lord gave Othniel victory over him. So there was peace in the land for 40 years. Then Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. So here's, here's the cycle we see the Israelites going through, right? They, they get a leader and that's good. And when they have a leader, things seem to go really well. And then when that leader dies, they end up in this spiral, and it just says they did evil in the Lord's sight. And they change direction, they don't have that leader that they needed, and they start to look at the nations around them, and they start to have involvement with those nations that they're not supposed to have. And when that happens, they get into trouble. They start to look like those nations, they start to do what they do, they start to specifically worship their gods. And so this is a problem, and Phil talked to us a little bit about this last week, and the way that I would say this is that the way, sorry, what they saw with their eyes was greater than what they knew in their hearts. And so they started to look at those nations around them and see what else was going on for them, and seeing maybe the success they had, the prosperity they had, the things that were going right for them, and they said, well, if things aren't really going right for me right now, why don't I just turn my attention towards that and kind of join them, and maybe that'll work out well for me. And when Phil talked to us about this last, last week, he said this word new. He goes, this isn't like you knew, like you know two plus two is four, right? It's not like the knowledge that we're talking about. What we're talking about is knowing someone intimately. So like your spouse or your family members you've lived with, right? You, or a roommate you've had for a long time. When you do life together with somebody and you live in that same space and you understand and you've gone through good times and bad times with them, you know them. You know how they respond. You know what they do. The Israelites knew God, right? They had seen him do amazing things. They had seen him come through when they needed him. He had set them apart as his nation. They knew this. And yet what they saw with their eyes was greater than what they knew in their hearts. And so they let their eyes get to the point where they were receiving the information in a different way than they were supposed to. And they started to go in that direction rather than following what God had laid out as his plan for them. And so here's what happens when that, when that takes place. When we choose to worship something other than God, he allows us to make that decision. This is, this is an important, important point, I think. Because sometimes we want to argue with God and we would, we would like them, we would like God to just say, no, I'm just going to fix everything. Like nothing is ever going to go wrong. I'm not going to let you choose to go down this path. I'm just going to fix it all. And the problem there is that then we all become robots. If God doesn't give us the choice, then we are simply robots that have just one auto setting that just goes towards him. He could have made us that way, 
But instead what God does, and we see this here with the Israelites, is he allows us, when we're going to choose to go towards something else, he's going to allow that to happen. We see this not only in the Old Testament with the Israelites, but we see it in the New Testament. If you think of the story of the prodigal son, right? Son comes to dad, says, I'm done with this. I want my inheritance now. Will you give it to me? And dad just says, here you go. He allows them to make that decision. And and again, I think this is an important statement because God's going to let us choose to go the wrong way if we want to. And that doesn't mean he doesn't love us. That doesn't mean that he's not involved in our lives. It doesn't mean that he's not still there. But just like as dads or as parents or maybe even grandparents or aunts and uncles or even even a boss in a situation, right? Sometimes if someone's going to make a decision, we're going to say, okay, go ahead. Like you have to learn from this. You have to get to a place where you're realizing this is wrong. And sometimes when you learn that on your own, it's better. And so he allows the Israelites to make this decision. Then we see Othniel come along, and remember, if you go back to week one, if you, want, if you weren't here, you can go back and listen and watch. Pastor Andrew said Othniel was one of the guys that actually followed all the instructions. He did a really good job, and so God raises him up, and everything goes okay, but then Othniel dies. We're going to keep going in Judges 3.12. It says, once again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil. Verses 13 and 14, Eglon enlisted the Ammonites and the Amalekites as allies. And then he went out and defeated Israel, taking possession of Jericho and the city of Palms. And the Israelites served Eglon of Moab for 18 years. And so the Israelites make this choice again to go after the people around them, to be like the people around them. And guess what happens? Those people come in and they take them over. And this is really, I think this is true to understand. Left to our own desires, we will enslave ourselves to whatever we worship. And what ends up happening is the Israelites start to worship the wrong gods. They give their attention to the wrong places. And the nations around them get to come and take over. And they hold them under their thumb for 18 years. Now we might think of this and go, I don't worship other things. Like we know today, right? Unlike people back then, if you make something out of gold or you make something out of wood and you bow down to it, it's not going to do anything, right? Science tells us that. And in fact, some people think we're kind of silly for worshiping God because we give our time and our energy and our resources to something we can't see. And when that happens, we end up worshiping something that's not really there, right? People look at that and they think it's silly. We get that if we just say something is an idol or a God and we worship it, it's not going to do anything anything. And so when we read this, we might think, well, I don't do that. I don't bow down to anything and worship it. But the question is, what does our time and energy and our resources, what do they go to? Because here's what I, need, here's what I know. And this is true because I know it from my own life, right? When I overcommit to something and I give too much time and energy and influence to it in my life, then it has a stranglehold on other things. And so when I, when I am involved in something, it could be even a good thing, right? It's not necessarily a bad thing, and so I'm involved over here. But then that means I can't spend the time with God that I need to, or it means I can't spend the time at home that I need to, or it means I can't spend the time working on something that I need to. Now all of a sudden, that thing is in control of my time and my energy and maybe even my resources. That's how we understand what idolatry is in our time and context, When there's something that comes and takes over and has a stranglehold on our time and our energy and our resources, that can become an idol. 
And I'm not talking about the good stuff, right? Like some of you are like, that sounds like what happens at my house all the time. And sometimes it's true. Like when you, when you have a job that you need to do, right, that's going to influence how you spend your time. When you have people you need to take care of and relationships you need to curate and things like that, like that's going to take time. We're not talking about the stuff that are good responsibilities that God has given to us. What we're talking about is maybe the extra things. Maybe the things that we've gotten stuck in. Maybe the things that, maybe it could be a hobby, right? Not even bad, but it just overtakes our time. And so when we let our, left to our own desires, we will enslave ourselves to whatever we worship. There's something that comes and takes over. And we will give ourselves over to that. Just like the Israelites willingly turned to their attention to other things and gave themselves over to be taken over by these other nations. And in Judges 3.15, it says this, But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. The Israelites sent Ehud to deliver their tribute money to King Eglon of Moab. Now this is really interesting. This is after 18 years. It took 18 years for the Israelites to go, Oh, right. This is a bad thing. We should cry out to God in this moment. What does that tell us? Sometimes we go down these paths and we actually think they're really good for a long time. You can make a decision. I can make a decision. I can start to chase after something. I can give my attention somewhere and it takes me down this path and all of a sudden there's a snowball. And for the Israelites, it was 18 years later, they cried out to God for them to help, for him to help them. That means, I don't know, maybe five years into this, they were still kind of happy with it. Like they were taken over, but maybe they were like, maybe there was prosperity there. Maybe things were going okay. And finally, after 18 years, they realize what's going on and they cry out to God and say, please help us. And God raises up Ehud. Now, this is very interesting too. They say that Ehud was a left-handed man. We're going to come back to that. That's an interesting detail to get, right? So we'll, we'll come back to that in a little bit. But here's what I, I want us to see when we talked a few minutes ago about how God will allow us to make the decision to go away from him, he will let that happen and we can get ourselves in trouble. Here's what is also true. God always answers when his children cry out. The minute that the Israelites cry out, we see that God responds. God says, I hear you, I'm with you. Go back to, again, the, pro- the story of the prodigal son. Prodigal son goes away, spends all dad's money, gets himself in trouble, has to run home, and he comes home and just says, will you take me back just to work for you? And dad says, no way, and he wraps his arms around him, right? This is a story that fleshes out in both the Old and the New Testament. And when the people of Israel, even though they've gotten themselves in trouble, even though they've walked down this path, even though they're worshiping other gods, and it takes them 18 years to decide to come back, God is still ready and willing to help them. And so he raises up Ehud, In today's conversation, there's kind of two parts we're going to talk about, okay? There's two main points that I want us to grasp as we look at today's text. The first thing is this, is that God will allow consequences to come, but he will not leave you alone to deal, sorry, he will not leave you to deal with them alone. God will allow us to make those poor decisions. God will allow us to stray from the path. God will allow us to worship other things. And he will allow the consequences from those decisions to come. But if we turn back to him and and ask for help, he won't leave us to deal with it alone. He'll be there waiting to walk with us. So here's the encouragement, right? Maybe as I'm talking, you're saying there's something that has a stranglehold on my life. 
There's something that I need to get rid of. There's something that's frustrating. There's something that I've allowed to take this hold and it's influencing my time and energy, my resources, and it shouldn't be. The good thing is if we ask God for help, he's going to be there to help. He doesn't ever just kind of wash his hands and go, oh, you're on your own, forget it. I'm not helping now. You made it too far gone. Listen, if the Israelites can go as a nation 18 years, we can turn back to God and say, would you help me? And he'll be there to help us. Verses 16 and 17, it goes on. It says, so Ehud made a double-edged dagger that was about a foot long, or 18 inches, depending on your translation. He strapped it to his right thigh, keeping it hidden under his clothing. He brought the tribute money to Eglon, who was very fat. Okay? Very, very important details, right? That Eglon was very fat. So we, we have these details, okay? We've got Ehud and Eglon. We know Ehud, left-handed. We know, sorry, I can't even get, I get them mixed up in my head because they're both E's. Eglon is fat. Okay, so we got a left-handed man, we got a fat man. These are the two main characters in your story. This is where Judges gets interesting, okay? So Ehud has to go because they're still under rule of Eglon. He has to take the tribute. Here's what this reminds me of. You guys ever seen the movie A Bug's Life? So in the movie A Bug's Life, the ants, if you haven't seen it, it's kind of funny. It's old now, which is kind of crazy. But they, take the, they have to get all the, all the food together, right? And they're going to pay the grasshoppers before they can save food for themselves so that the grasshoppers will protect them. This is kind of what's happening, all right? So the, the Israelites have to give their tribute to Eglon to keep Eglon literally fat and happy so that he'll kind of do what he needs to do and things stay peaceful in the kingdom. So this is what Ehud does. Now remember... Ehud's a left-handed guy. Now, why, why is that important? Well, think about today. Today's world is a right-handed world. There, it's, I looked up the statistics. It's somewhere between 85 and 90% of people in the world are right-handed. And actually, in the United States, we're on the higher end of left-handed people because some nations will actually teach kids not to be left-handed, right? So at least here, we kind of just go, yeah, just be right, left, right or left-handed. It's fine. But scissors are difficult, right, for left-handed people. I'm not left-handed. How many people are left-handed? A few? Okay, cool. Yeah, that's a good amount. That's probably about right. Like 90% of us are right-handed. So left-handed or sorry, scissors are, are difficult unless you have left-handed scissors. Writing on a whiteboard. I remember my teacher friends always saying that was difficult because if I write on a whiteboard, my hand stays in front of the, the words as I'm writing. Well, if you're left-handed, you're going to like swipe it as you go, right? So you've got to keep your hand off the board. It's kind of annoying. So we live in a right-handed world. It was even more so back then. And when we, when we read that Ehud was a left-handed guy, this isn't just that he was born and just chose to pick up his chisel or whatever he used to write, right? He didn't just use his left hand. There was probably a problem with his right hand. So either he was in an accident and his hand was crushed or he was born with a withered hand. It was impossible probably for him to actually use his right hand. So there, there was no option for him. He just had to be left-handed. So when he makes a dagger and sticks it to his right thigh, no one's expecting this because Everybody was taught to fight with their right hand. And if you couldn't use your right hand, well, guess what? You probably weren't a very good fighter. And for you to have a dagger strapped to your right thigh, that wasn't normal. So no one even looked there to kind of check to see if he was armed. So this is important, right? And so it says in verses 18 and 19, After delivering the payment, Ehud started home with those who had helped carry the tribute. But Ehud reached the stone idols near Gilgal, and he turned back. He came to Eglon and said, I have a secret message for you. Verse 19. So the king commanded his servants, be quiet, and he sent them all 
out of the room. Why did he send them out of the room? Because he's not worried about Ehud doing anything because he doesn't think he can fight him. He thinks, oh, this guy's got a withered hand. He's like a little kitten, right? This guy can't do anything. He's got nothing. Let's keep going. So verses 20 and 21. Ehud walked over to Eglon, who was sitting alone in a cool upstairs room. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. As King Eglon rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, pulled out the dagger strapped to his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Verses 22 and 23. The dagger went deep in so deep that the handle disappeared underneath the king's fat. So Ehud did not pull out the dagger. The king's bowels emptied. Then Ehud closed and locked the doors of the room and escaped down the latrine. Verse 24. After Ehud was gone, the king's servants returned and found the doors to the upstairs room locked. They thought he might be using the latrine in the room. So verse 25. So they waited. But when the king didn't come out after a long delay, they became concerned and got a key. And when they opened the doors, they found their master dead on the floor. Verses 26, 27. While the servants were waiting, Ehud escaped, passing the stone idols on his way to Sariah. Sarah? Yeah, I think so. When he arrived on the hill, in the hill country of Ephraim, Ehud sounded the call to arms, and he led the band of Israelites down from the hills. Verse 28. Follow me, he said, for the Lord has given you victory over Moab, your enemy. So they followed him. And the Israelites took control of the shallow crossings of the Jordan River across from Moab, preventing anyone from crossing. In verses 29 and 30, they attacked the Moabites and killed about 10,000 of their strongest and most able-bodied warriors. Not one of them escaped. So Moab was conquered by Israel that day, and there was peace in the land for 80 years. And so we see Ehud does what he's supposed to do. Takes out Eglon. This is kind of funny, right? So, like, Eglon, he's hurt. He's dead in the room. They already, he, he had locked the doors. So the guys come and they just think, oh, he just must be in the bathroom. Well, they wait long enough for it to be kind of, like, embarrassing or something's wrong for him to be in the bathroom that long. And then they finally get the key and come find that he's dead. And so that gives Ehud enough time to get out of there, go get his buddies. They come back, they attack, and they get to take over. Now, some people have a problem with this story. They wonder what's going on with this story because it's kind of odd that Ehud would kind of act as an assassin because we don't see this happen much in Scripture. In fact, if we think to the story of David, when he's hiding in the cave from Saul, he says, I'm not going to kill the king this way. Ehud's got no problem. He's like, I'll take the guy out alone. That's totally fine. So why is that the case? And scholars think it's the case because Ehud had a little bit more to prove. David had already killed Goliath. He had already done some pretty amazing things for people to look at him and understand that he was a follower of God, that he, had, he was strong, he was going to be able to be used by God. That wasn't hard for them to see. When everyone looked at Ehud, they just saw his crippled hand. And even other kings that he was in the presence of looked at him and just said, yeah, you're no threat. I'm just going to send everybody out of the room who would help me, and then we'll just be alone. Ehud had to do something to show that God was going to use him even though he seemed weak and harmless. And so what does he do? He takes out the king, and then he goes and gets the men and says, this is what I've done. This is what we're going to do. Are you with me? And they come in, and they kill 10,000 of their strongest able-bodied warriors, and God delivers them, and they get to have peace for 80 years. It's a long time. They get to live at peace because of what is done by Ehud. Now again, one of the crazy stories, 
this story, you want to play it out minute by minute in a movie, it's going to get a little gory, right? It's going to get a little crazy. So what do we do with this? We've already seen what was true when we look at the way the cycle was happening for the Israelites. So how do we take this story and what do we understand from the life of Ehud? And I would say it this way, that just because you don't look the part doesn't mean you can't play the part. We see a lot of times in scripture where God will choose someone who doesn't look like they're up to the task. So we can go through the list, right? You could look at Moses, who we believe maybe had a speech impediment, and, and then God is asking him to be the voice for Israel to Pharaoh. And then he goes, I don't speak really well. He's, God's like, don't worry about it. I got it, right? They come looking for the next king of Israel, and, and uh, Jess, or sorry, David's dad brings all the, all the sons out, right? And they say, which one is it? And they're like, well, we have one left, and he's out in the field. You don't want him, right? Nope, go get him. We want him, right? And then even Jesus, we see in the prophecy that there would be nothing about him that you would just look at him and go, I'm going to follow that guy. Like every time God brings somebody in who doesn't necessarily look like they're the strongest or most prepared person in the room, and yet he still chooses to use us. In fact, when Saul is named king of Israel. It's because of his stature and his strength, and that didn't work out at all. And so there's going to be times in life where we go, I'm not necessarily the most prepared person. I may not be the favorite. I may not be the one who's supposed to be in this spot. And God still says, I'm going to use you. Now, here's the, here's the thing that I think is interesting. If you think back to that story, Ehud had no way to know that Eglon was going to send all the people out of the room. He didn't know that was going to happen. He had just been there. He had sized up the room. Maybe he had a plan. But he didn't know that Eglon was just going to go, all right, everybody out of here. Right, we got a secret to tell, right? He, you could tell a secret with someone else on the other side of the room, right? So he didn't know that was going to happen. And yet he walked back in knowing that he was at a disadvantage, knowing that they were going to maybe be more prepared than he was. He still walked back in that room and thought, I need to take care of business. Because God had set him up and he believed that God was with him. And here's what happens. When we focus on our strengths and don't pay attention to the weaknesses or don't pay attention to the way God can use us, here's what can happen. Strengths can become idols when they replace our need for God. Because here's what can happen. I do this too. We can focus on the strengths we have and we can lean into them real hard. And we can go, oh, I can handle this because of X, Y, and Z. And, and if I can't handle it or if I don't feel like I'm built for that space or I'm able to, I'm just going to leave those things alone. I'm going to live in my strength and use my strength. And those things can become idols because we can become overconfident in them and only focus on that one thing. Now, here's what's true, and I know this to be true, that we should focus on our strengths. We should use our strengths. And hopefully you find spaces in life where your strengths are put to good use. When people come to us at church and they say, how can I serve? My first question to them is, what do you love to do? Because I want you to serve and I want you to be in a space where you are fulfilled by the work you're doing because you're enjoying it and we're getting the most from you. Like you're able to leverage that the best because you love doing it, and you're probably better at that than I am, or better at that than somebody else's. So let's put you in that position. So using our strengths is important. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but we can't let those things become idols to the point where we don't follow where God is leading us, because it might be difficult, and we don't feel prepared for it. God takes people over and over again who aren't prepared, who aren't able, or have strengths in those areas, and says, this is what I'm going to call you to do. And when those moments come, We have to be ready to do it. We have to be ready to say, it's not about what my strength is, it's about what God's strength is. 
And so here's the second thing I want us to understand today is that God gives us strengths to leverage and weaknesses to surrender. Think about that for a moment. God gives us strengths to leverage and weaknesses to surrender. What do I mean by that? I mean, first of all, whatever your strengths are, you've been given to leverage for the kingdom of God. That's why they were given to you. So if you're a really good business person, you're supposed to leverage that to further the kingdom of God. If you're a really good teacher, you're supposed to leverage that to further the kingdom of God. If you have a certain skill set, it could even be a hobby that you're just good. You're supposed to use that to leverage it to build the kingdom of God. That's why it's there. But guess what? We also have weaknesses that we can surrender to God. And we can say to him, you take this. I'm, it's not my strength, but God, in my weakness, you're going to move. And I'm going to allow you to do that. And I'm going to surrender that to you. And however you want to use that in my life, you just go ahead. We're going to go there. Right? Paul talks about this in the New Testament. He says, so that I might boast in my weakness. Because God's going to do something even greater through my weakness than I'm going to do through my own strength. And so when we balance this and we understand, I know the gifts I've been given. Or I know what my passions are. Or I know what I'm going to, I'm going to use that to leverage it to build the kingdom of God. But when I see that weakness, I'm going to turn that over to God and let him do the work in those areas. Listen, we, we, we should be doing this in our own personal lives, but we can also do this as a church. When we all leverage our strengths together, we all have different ones. So then we are able to come alongside one another in those weaknesses, and God's going to do some really cool things if we turn those weaknesses over to him and allow him to move in those areas. But when we only focus on our strengths, when we only focus on what we're good at, we miss that part. And God can always do more through our weaknesses than we can do alone through our own strengths. And so here's the question I want us to process as we, as we wrap up our conversation for this week. What strength should I leverage? Or what strength do you need to be leveraging? If you think about it and you go, I know that I'm good at X, Y, Z, or I have this passion, or I have this thing that I'm, I'm good at, right? I can do it. I love to do it. Are you using it for God to further God's kingdom? Or are we using it for our own fun or our own enjoyment? Because when God gives us those strengths, that's what they're there to do, is to help build the kingdom. Now, they can be a lot of fun. I loved playing dodgeball when I was a youth pastor. It was a lot of fun. And I could throw the ball at kids that were bad that night, right? It was great. But here's the thing. I needed to leverage that fun... And at times it meant grabbing a dodgeball and handing it to the sixth grader in the corner so he could play and he would feel included so that he, I could leverage that in his life. Right? That's what that means. If I can do it with something as simple as dodgeball, we can do it with a lot of things. Here's the second question. What weakness do I need to surrender? Is there something we're not good at, something we feel is a weakness, something we think is not our gifting, and we ignore it? And we say, God couldn't use me there. Or someone comes in and we say, hey, I, I want you to be used in this space. And we go, no, I, I'm not good at that. I can't, it, that can't be me. Are we using that and saying, I'll surrender it though. I'll let God use it. I'll let him work through that. It's not just about what I need. Now this is difficult. And, and maybe this isn't something that automatically pops into your head. But I, I want us to be aware of this, right? We're, we're going to go through this conversation in Judges for a while. 
And there's going to be certain times where judges come along and they're really good at something. I think Ehud was really brave. I think he had overcome a lot of adversity in his life and that gave him the strength to be able to step into that space and go, even though I'm not the best prepared for this situation, I'm going to go for it. He was brave. That was a strength that he had. But physically, he didn't match up. So when those times come, like process that. There's a moment where you feel inadequate, where you feel like you're not prepared for what's going on. Lean into that. Allow God to move through that. There was a conversation I was having with some people the other night, and we just kind of said out loud, like multiple people said, there's just times in the different roles I play, I don't feel adequate. Or if one's going really well, it feels like another one goes poorly. In those moments, we just have to turn it over to God and say, even when I'm not as adequate as I feel like I need to be, or I feel like I should be, surrender it and allow God to do something that you would never be able to do on your own if you only focused on your strengths. Process this. Think about it this week. Even if, like I said, there's not something off the top of your head, think about it. Make a plan. How do you leverage the strengths and passions you've been given And how do you surrender the weaknesses you see? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for stories like uh, Ehud and what we can learn from him. We thank you that you don't use simply perfect people. That you don't look at someone and say, well, if they're not the right stature, they don't have the right strength, they don't have the right, they're not as prepared or they're not as seen as, strong or dangerous or whatever, like you you still look at that and you say, but I can work with that. I can use that. And in fact, sometimes those weaknesses are the things where you work the best. And so I pray as we as we just ponder this story of Ehud and, and what you did through his life, I pray that you would make it clear what, what we are to leverage. That you would give us clear ways that we can use the gifts and passions you've given us to build your kingdom. And I ask that when those moments come along where we feel inadequate, where we feel like we're not prepared or it's not our strong suit, that we would turn that over to you, that we would still step into the places we're supposed to step into and we would allow you to move through those spaces. And I pray ultimately that those passions and strengths you've given us would not become idols that we only focus on and we limit what you can do in us. And I pray as we go through the story of Judges, as we learn from the people of Israel, and from the judges themselves, that you would grow us into the leaders that you want us to be in our own context. In Jesus' name, amen.